You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Knife here with Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 1995 classic, Lord of Illusions. I'd have to say it was a classic in the same basements where Nightbreed was a classic for me. Uh, It was popular enough amongst the Clyde Barker fans and people like my mother Mm -hmm. who enjoyed this sort of very weird fringe horror adjacent sort of stuff but uh i don't remember it it really fell off the radar it did it really did for me it was a film that i was familiar with as a child and forgot all about until scream factory decided to do what they do which is a kick-ass collector's edition of it. It came to mind to me from time to time um, when thinking about grand stage spectacles and things like magic shows. Whenever I think of the show Circus, I think of Lord of Illusions and how I wish that's what it was and that I might have watched it. <laughs> but was, there's no big names attached to this either for the time. Uh, was Scott Bakula on the tip of the tongues of all? Scott Bakula had done a show that was quite popular in the 1980s called Quantum Leap. Oh, how could I forget? (laughs) Uh, That was a favorite show of mine as a kid. But when it came to um, uh, when it came to his latter years before he did Star Trek Enterprise as a captain, Mm -hmm. he was kind of in that uh, Treat Williams camp. Where doing kind of weird action movies, uh, Treat Williams, people might be most familiar with him, with that, uh, with that fucking movie, The Deep, or whatever the fuck it was, where the octopus thing was killing people. But, um, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't say that Scott Bakula was huge. And at least at this time, people would have been like, oh, the guy from Quantum Leap. Yeah. But in terms of a leading man, I don't know if Scott Bakula was putting, Asses in the seats. I love him as an actor, and I've, I've loved a lot of stuff that he's done. Uh, Famika Jensen, again, this person was hot off of Goldeneye, uh, which would have been her most visible thing before that. But I even, again, I had forgotten both of them were in this fucking cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean... <laughs> Next is from fucking Seinfeld. Yeah, I know. I recognized him from all sorts of television roles. And mm-hmm. I mean, Scott Bakula having his, his start in TV as well. Like, and Jensen going into TV afterward, you mm-hmm. know, like, they're not necessarily huge names. I always wanted Scott Bakula to get into horror because he could be Bakula. No. <laughs> <laughs> but he could do like a My Name is Bruce type movie where he becomes. A vampire, and then he's just Count Bacula. Yeah, Count Bacula. Oh, man. <laughs> if you're listening, sir. Yeah, if you're yeah. listening, money is on the table. There's a move for you that needs to be made. <laughs> I, I really like him as Harry Demore in particular. I mean, there's no other real screen adaptation of that particular character. And this was a 
revelation for you. It was. Uh, you educated me, as you often do. Barely. Yeah, you educate me a lot when it comes to the literary world. Um, you know, typical books. Mm. Oh, yeah. But mm-hmm. but uh, you had uh, you had educated me uh, during the film that this was a recurring Clive Barker character in a lot of his uh, short stories, right? And longer fiction, Everville, is part of a three-part The Art series, and it uh, starts with The Great and Secret Show that has a little bit of Harry Damore, and that's where I was introduced to Harry Damore, and then reading Everville, where he is a, a main character in that. But he is in the Books of Blood 6, and at the time I only had Books of Blood 1 to 4, so this was not on my radar as far as Harry Damore until later on. Mm-hmm. And The Last Illusion is the short story by Clab Barker that this was based on, mm-hmm. which came out something like 10 years before this film was made. And I, I really like the character of Harry Damore because he represents that sort of cross into the occult and the noir, the religious and the gumshoe, the demons in heaven and hell on one side and the heaven and hell that is it when a dame walks in your office. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It's, he's, he's very hard-boiled. Very hard-boiled. And it's a, a very cool character for a, a Brit to be writing, I thought. And I really enjoyed what Clyde Barker was doing with this kind of regular Joe shoving him into these like very very dark scenarios with very warped cult-like people by and large that's where where harry ends up all the time and i would love to see more of it and i haven't read scarlet gospels he's a huge character in scarlet gospels he goes on in comics to have a very intimate interaction with our pals the cenobites from hellraiser which i own some of those but i haven't read them all so i'm not in tune with that iteration of harry demore but i really liked this on-screen vision of Harry Damore. It lived up to what I had wanted. Although Clive Barker himself hasn't lived up to what I wanted as far as more Harry Damore content. Uh, oh, well, he's a fictional character. I can't, you know, hang hang my hat on that too heavily because a creator creates what they do, right? I have n- like fans have no control over that. No amount of crying or fucking Twitter polls are going to change that. I just really hope that he puts out more someday. Mm-hmm. I really do. Or perhaps like more um, more film adaptations. The one thing that um, I have that we both noticed in this, and I've always thought, is that there is a very, very similar parallel between him and John Constantine. Yes, yeah, so, uh, when you had so the scene in which we had uh, you had educated me was when I was asking why has he got that weird back tattoo because when it comes to sex scenes we talk about the movie because they're boring as shit so we generally start to talk about the things in the film and look up cast members during those scenes and that was Scott Bakula has his shirt off and we know he doesn't have an esoteric tattoo on his back so yeah and I was offhandedly like oh that's just to ward off demons because that's what harry demore needs right Mm, and when when you said something like that the first character that i could think of was john constantine john constantine to any comic book fan or even nowadays the characters have become a lot bigger because there was a tv show and then there was the keanu reeves uh movie so i think a lot more people know who this character is nowadays but uh Back when Lord of Illusions had come out, I mean, unless you were reading the Hell Blazer series, 
you wouldn't really be familiar with that character. Um, I do love the Hellblazer, Hellraiser problem and Mm. how those two characters are so fucking similar. Like, it's just weird to me. And we had discerned that these characters are probably born around the same time in two Mm -hmm. creators' heads. Yeah, Len Wein was the person that created uh, Constantine. It was in the pages of Swamp Thing is where the character had showed up in 1985. Clive Barker's first book in which he had the Harry Damore character was introduced was in 1986. But knowing what we know about both comic book publication and actual book publication, they were probably being written in and around the same time. Or wrung out of their very sweat and blood and tears over long evenings and it could take 10 fucking years for this sort of creativity to take place. Um, but so yeah, they were just hatched from little separate eggs. I, I, I think it's fantastic when two artists or more have a very similar idea. And it just goes to show that even in a really tangential way that the socioeconomic political things going on in the world can feed creators so they end up creating two very similar characters i I think it's fantastic in a way unless they were like fucking or something it's possible but at at the same time it's not that big of a leap when when you're reading like agatha christie novels and then you're you're just like what if this detective fought demons yeah (laughs) yeah totally you're biting a fucking serial killer and instead of killing people you write fiction instead but you've read all those true detective novels that have fueled that right so yeah um i I really like both characters very fucking much and i have lots of constantine if i want you know there's quite a bit of john constantine out in the world Mm -hmm. i can i can follow his story as it were uh and i can watch keanu reeves you can so that's helpful mm-hmm. um but this is all we got as far as an on-screen representation of harry demore and we don't have enough of it for my liking but that's mm-hmm. just me being a harry demore fan mm-hmm. i really got to read scarlet gospels i am mm-hmm. a failing horror fan right now i should read it for typical books you know what i would like that because you can you can give me the lowdown on it yeah i have the cliff notes i yeah. i'll read it so you don't have to that's that's a good tagline. That's what I should call my my, my <laughs> fucking channel instead of typical yeah. books. What does that mean? Nothing. Well, it be, well, be, they say that the biggest problem with people these days is we spend more time reading about our interests and hobbies than we do actually experiencing them. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, a lot more people, if you spend all the time that you spent researching film history as just watching film, you would have seen a lot more movies, right? So it could be that. It's just like, hey, you lazy fucking millennial, put down your fidget spinner, stop doing your bottle tricks, no time for dabbing, just watch this five minute video and I'll tell you what the book's about. And then you can just tell all your stupid premium coffee shop friends that you read it lie to their fucking face you fucking pustule i have it on good authority they have that cat poop coffee in toronto i know that that's totally uh, <laughs> uh, like not related but i'm so fucking excited i think it's like 20 bucks a cup oh, i want to go anyway <laughs> yeah no you're totally right and i think i should challenge myself a little bit here and read the scarlet gospels god damn it um because i'm a harry demore fan and i'm a pinhead fan and this has best of both worlds right mm. although from what like i don't know i i won't get into what i've heard about it in reviews i'll read it for my goddamn self there is a halfaween i don't know how to pronounce that but ha- halfaween halfaween it's a halfway to halloween reading 
challenge posited by a couple of booktubers and uh, specifically the girl called That's What She Read from Books in the Freezer, which is a horror fiction podcast, which is right up there with, I had said on a, a other podcast that I was on, I was on um, Wasteland Broadcast episode three yeah. recently talking horror. I listened to it. It was, thank you. It was fun, huh? Mm. Um, that, and I talked about the premier horror fiction podcast, This Is Horror. And I've talked about it a lot. I plug them whenever I can. I love the This Is Horror podcast. And I also love Unnerving Magazine podcast, which is fiction, uh, like nonfiction. They talk to writers and it's interviews. And on the fiction end of it, Books in the Freezer is a podcast I listen to quite often. But one of them is also a booktuber like myself. And the the challenge has to do with uh, reading a book that's adapted into a movie, reading um, something that isn't a novel, so something like poetry or something like that, or a novella or something. And reading something from one of the great masters of horror, ooh, Clive Barker. Ooh. Hello. So maybe I'll buckle down and read that over the next week and stop failing so bad as a human being. <laughs> You're a busy person. You read a lot of books. I am a busy person. I am a busy person. But somehow I managed to crank out some typical books episodes. So yeah, you can ch- check out my YouTube channel. You can find it through LydiaPeaver.ca. Yeah, no, and we have, uh, we've been tweaking the splatterpictures.com website a little bit here and there. So you'll see some changes here and there, just little tiny tweaks, little mm. tiny tweaks. And hopefully, uh, since you said that you can embed Teresa, mm. we should just start putting that up there because there's going to be some stuff coming. There is. Um, by the time this comes out, issue four, Lucid Nightmare, the first part of a brand new arc in Teresa is going to be starting. Um, I'm very excited about this one because we are, um, Teresa is always going to be an action horror series, but in this arc, I slow things down and we are going to get back into more traditional suspense as opposed to just out and out action. There will be a lot of action in it. The first arc was very high octane, but, uh, this one slows down a little bit. And uh, dealing with more uh, library scenes, more microfiche, more trying to figure out what certain problems on the horizon are. I'm stoked for library scenes. I got to see a sneak peek of the cover, and I like it very, very, very much. Mm -hmm. Chris has a great style, and I really like when he gets to come out of uh, and play with perspective a little. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just really enjoy what's going on in the cover. Yeah. The cover, I remember when he first showed it to me, I was like, Oh man, it's like, a, it's really Scooby-Doo. That's like the vibe I'm getting from it. And he was like, is that a good thing? I'm like, fuck yeah, it's a good thing. I, fucking, yeah, it's a good thing. <laughs> I like the color palette too. And how a lot of things fire off the purples that he uses. So yeah, um, mm. hopefully we'll figure out how to embed that nice and neatly. I like embedding things. I'm I'm lazy, right? So I'm going to help instill some laziness in you, Wes, like you need more. <laughs> and um, we'll figure out how to automate all that so that you guys can continue doing the hard work that is creating Teresa and not worry about the fiddly bits like fucking coding and shit. Yeah, it is really. Um, the, one, the nice thing about Webtoons is it really just streamlined the entire process. I was like, I just want to make this thing. And for people to read it, I don't want to fuck around with websites. Mm-hmm. And and so Webtoons really allows us to do that. And our community is still growing. We've been off for a month, but 
we're still getting new subs, we're still getting new comments, and people are catching up and discovering Teresa. So I'll be happy to uh, be able to explode this new uh, story arc onto them. So it's really, really exciting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And and feed more Patreon content, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a thing. Like, um, th- there's uh, the Patreon. If you guys are interested in it, you don't have to. But I try to make it worth your while by bringing you behind the scenes and talking about why monsters look the way that they do, our creative process, um, how we sort of sort things out. Um, we have a character returning to the series um, that uh, people might have even forgotten about because they're there for a hot minute, but uh, they play focus in the next arc quite significantly, um, which was a special request and and uh, of my artist. My artist liked this character so much that he he said, "Can this person maybe live?" Uh, it's probably not who you're thinking, <laughs> but the. Um, and so I explained that process because I don't know, like, I really like transparency. So if something's already been released, I always kind of like to give people a heads up like, hey, this is why this got, this is why this decision was made as opposed to, I don't know, like, that's just the kind of stuff that I like when I'm looking at behind the scenes shit for movies and, and comics that I'm interested in. I love creators talking about like, why does it look like this? Why did you decide to go here and do that like why this monster not that one like that type of shit yeah yeah and also help circumvent crybabies because if they're going to be crybaby about something they can just go and check out the paper and probably explain it i do and uh and also uh that cover that i showed you that's Mm -hmm. a secret has already been shown to them yeah lucky little bastards yeah they they get to see things uh in early stages too, like early pages, like stuff as we're creating it and shit like that. Basically anything that I think is like worth their while mm-hmm. and shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's my big spiel about the Patreon. And then, you know, if you like to, if you want to, you don't have to. The comic's still coming no matter what. <laughs> that's what I like about our show. We don't have anything attached to it, but it still comes whether you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> we do have our sponsor, Vance Barn Bites, though. We think. Special thanks to Vamps Farm Bites. Always mm-hmm. there when you need them. And whether they have a mic or not, or any beer or not, yeah. Yeah, the the premier, the only bar, vampire-themed bar in all of Toronto. Maybe even the world. Maybe even the world. Come on down for the open mic night. They don't have a mic, so maybe bring one. That'd be cool. And you can be the DJ. Bring your iPod. <laughs> uh, take a bite out of your night with Vamps Bar and Bites. Best Twitter account ever. So everyone, yep, go and check out Vamps Barn Bites. That's bar and bites, not barn bites. <laughs> Much better than Cliff Bars as our sponsor. We don't have a sponsor. I mean, I just want to make that very, very clear. Oh, if someone wants to put some fat stacks of paper cash in my old lap, I'll sell us out in a heartbeat. We should just start being sellouts and being like, sponsored by Teresa. Sponsored by Teresa. Hell yeah. Let the darkness embrace you. Hell yeah. Okay. Anyway, back to the show. Back to the show. Let me ask you this. When you first heard that there was a new Clive Barker movie around the corner called Lord of Illusions... Was Chibi Lydia into that? Super excited. Did you see this within the first little bit of release? Or I wanted um, 
other Clive Barker properties to be made into a, a film. And at this time, I was probably reading Imagica, which is far too vast. I mean, that's been toyed with, but it's it's very vast. But I, I wanted to see other properties made into... I, I wanted to see In the Hills of Cities. If you're going to pick books of blood stories, The Addering and Jack would be a fun Twilight Zone episode. But In the Hills of Cities is, is a lot like... Uh, it's very Attack on Titan. And that's... Okay. Every time I see that, I think of In the Hills of Cities. And I, I wanted to see that come to life and with cg the way it is now i mean holy shit could you ever do an amazing fucking job of that but at the time that's that's more what i wanted to see i wanted to see the inhuman condition maybe even though it's a little bit more of a sleeper but yeah i i wanted to see other properties so i wasn't that as excited as i should be as a clive barker fan mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. see i had no knowledge of Clive Barker. Well, I did. That's that's a lie. I because I'd I'd seen Hellraiser before I had seen this. But Clive Barker was not. I was not really familiar with his books. I'm still not familiar with his books. I'm not a reader. Uh, but when Lord of Illusions came out, it was a really weird, unique experience for me. That really uh, I really focus on a lot, and I always think about the experience of watching this movie more so than actually watching it, because this wasn't a dank experience. Oh, it wasn't in the Alta Vista basement on the shag carpet with a pizza box. No, it was not. It wasn't because you know most people know about the basement on Alta Vista Drive. It's a mythical place, a magical place where wood panels and brass ducks were your gateway to the horror experience, but. Sometimes, Ole Wes was in his home away from home in Carlton Place, which is a little town that's about 45 minute to an hour drive from here. And flooding as we speak. And flooding as we speak. My grandparents lived there. And my grandparents, to give you an idea about them, they are very much the embodiment of hip young people in the 1950s. Like just that grandmother was an, uh, a nurse from the war. My grandfather was a tank operator uh, or radio operator within a tank from the war. So they both had like, you know, my, he, he became like a, a topographer for the government. Oh, cool. Okay. So like just very straight laced, deeply religious people. So they had, they were like typical grandparents of that era. And so going to Carlton Place and visiting our grandparents was a very like a different experience than living at home. My parents were pretty relaxed when it came to what we watched and what we did. But my, I mean, my grandparents didn't even want us watching The Simpsons. Oh my. Yeah. They were just, that's disgusting. That's disgusting. So that type of shit. So my brother and I would go up there all the time. And this particular time he brought one of his best friends with him, Arthur up to the, to my grandparents' place, and we decided to rent a movie. It could be as at my grandparents' house, you had a choice. You could watch The Sound of Music. You could watch Grumpier Old Men. You could watch any number of... Uh, that army movie that you couldn't remember the yeah, name of the longest Yeah, that, that movie that I couldn't remember the name of that my mom helped me out, and now I, of course, forget. So you could watch these types. Sister Act 2. That, uh-huh. was, that was another one. And you could rent things. And so you we would rent stuff that... I would always be like a family picture, something. Because you didn't want to freak out the normies. I, listen, one time I remember being at the video rental store and wanting to rent Army of Darkness. And 
my siblings and my cousins like looked at the back of it and they're like, no, we can't rent this. So what can you do? Right. You tried. You tried. We tried. But we decided to rent Lord of Illusions and we had rented films uh, before, but I'm, I don't know what compelled. It, it was not my decision. It was my brother and his uh, friend's decision. We rented this fucking movie and watched it. And I was really into it, like really into it as a kid. Um, and as I said in the previous episode, my, my brother's friend Arthur was into it, except he didn't like that Swan wasn't using his magic more. Like, I guess he wanted like lightning bolts. That's probably and, why they rented it. They were like, oh, magicians. That sounds cool. Yeah. And, and so this guy has magic and yet he's not using it. But looking back on it now, particularly ever having just watched this, because I want to be clear, I watched this movie then and I just watched this movie now. And the subject matter in this film, it's not particularly, listen, we're seasoned horror vets. So, you know, I was like, no, I don't find this movie scary. And I don't even really find it all that grotesquely violent. It's, it is, it's gory kind of, but like, not really. Um, there's blood, but at the time watching this film at my grandparents' house, if my fucking grandparents came downstairs and saw us watching a film in which a common housewife has just knifed her children and the camera lingers on a dead, bloody child on the kitchen floor. Wow. I can't imagine how they would have fucking reacted to that. That tape would have been ripped out of the VCR faster Holy than you'd turn into a pillar of salt. My house? Sure. Fine. My yeah. parents would never fucking admit to my grandparents that I was allowed to watch things like that. But my house, fine. My grandparents' house? No. No. So somehow you guys got away with this. Were they, like, asleep or in another room? This was the afternoon. We, 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 they had a basement, uh, that we watched everything in too, but their basement was, um, way more like a dollhouse. Like it, it had that fucking haunted doll Billy in it that used to watch us. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. Um, this was like a middle of the fucking day. Like, oh, what are you kids doing? Why don't you go rent a movie? Okay. And like, we go and we probably even rented a couple, to be honest with you. But this was the one that I remembered from that day. And they didn't come downstairs. I remember one time where my grandmother came downstairs while we were watching that TLC video, Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls. And she's there's a moment in that music video where two people are kissing. And my grandmother literally got out of her chair and said, that's disgusting. And she just got up. She went upstairs. Wow. So, like, the, just to give you an idea about yeah. the type of just, you know, very strict religious, typical old-fashioned grandparents. Yeah, very, very strict morals in that, let alone, you know, I think that just a scene of Butterfield in this would have sent her off the edge. <laughs> right. Let alone some of the visceral stuff that happens in the religious, things with religious overtones. Oh, the, the religious... Tones just would've... Butterfield being sexy. Yeah. Oh, so well, sexy. It's like but he's wearing nothing at all. Nothing at all. <laughs> nothing at stupid, stupid, sexy Butterfield. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, and and so I didn't watch this movie ever again, and I completely d- did not register in my head. I was like, oh, that movie, Lord of Illusions, and then I would see it years later. I was like, Clive Barker. Lord of Illusions? He did this? Wrote it, wrote screenplay, directed it. Yeah, I, was like, I had it. no yeah. fucking idea. And then you were like, Scott Bakula's in this? And it was really like, I don't think I remember this movie at all. And watching it again today, there was definitely parts that I do remember. Oh, for sure. But 
there's entire swaths of things that I didn't like. I didn't remember the plot. I remember the general plot not only from having read the short, but um, having discussed it here and there, talking to people about Clive Barker's work in the past, and there were things that stood out about this specifically the last illusion sort of mm. swan's death sort of i'm using all sorts of air quotes around every word i just said um that is like solidified in my mind i did remember some of the scenes from the beginning but only in like freeze frame remembrances yeah. i didn't remember that beginning happening at all it was just very strange to me that mm. i forgot the most pivotal point yeah uh, it's like scene missing <laughs> flash forward to the the show where Swan has his final show in LA. You know, that was really what I remembered the most. Mm-hmm. And a few scenes um, going through the story, a lot of Harry DeMora stuff, right? Mm. Remember Butterfield. But yeah, and I'd seen it a couple times because I'd watched it the first time and disenfranchised with it. I didn't enjoy mm. it. I wanted more, I don't know what the fuck I wanted more of, but more Harry DeMora, I guess, but less of this weird love thing going on. Mm. Um, But there wasn't even a heck of a lot of that. It's not that dry. And rewatching it now, I really enjoy it even more now as an adult Mm -hmm. or an older adult because I watched as a young adult. But Mm -hmm. either way, uh, I can't believe I didn't remember more of it, but I think I really had the scene with the swords. So like a oil painting in my head. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that stuck with me very much. This film was really like walking down memory memory lane for me. When scenes were happening, I thought to myself, "Oh yeah!" And it was like someone was showing me uh, tapes from my childhood, where and where like you can't remember a day at all. Because who remembers these little events in your life? But then when you're watching, so I was watching that sword scene. I couldn't tell you before we sat down and watched it that that scene was in the film. But then when I was sitting there watching it, I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Them getting sucked into the dirt. Didn't remember that until it happened. And then I was like, oh, yeah. What ends up happening to Swan? Oh, yeah. But then that being said, there was still entire chunks of this movie that flatlined. Did not remember at all. Of like him going to the magician's bar, for example. Like I didn't remember any of that. That shit. I didn't remember either. Although I did remember his conversation at the bar, which is weird. But I didn't remember him going to see the psychic. Oh yeah, I didn't remember that either. Casper, because um, that was super cool, and that plays into the next few scenes in the film very mm-hmm. much so because the Ten of Swords stands for crisis and wounds and despair and betrayal mm-hmm. and pain and death and suffering mm. which all sort of happened but the character really of butterfield was like completely deleted from my brain i really? did not remember that's that a shame because butterfield's super cool yeah i love that character mm-hmm. like watching this movie i was like I'm, I'm so into this character i fucking love this guy yeah 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 so what is this movie even about anyway wes this movie is what happens 
when you start dating a guy who's super into a religion that you don't really get and you promise you're going to convert and then at the last second you don't and then you break up with him and seal a mask around his face and bury him and then he's resurrected 10 years later super mad that you started dating someone else. Okay, okay, that's an interesting take on it. That's, that's what I got from this movie, especially all of Nix's last lines about wanting to be w- the like no one else is worthy, only Swan was worthy. Um, he and I are going to be together. His resentment towards Famika Jensen's character, um, basically for Swan for marrying this woman, be like still loving her. That's when he attacks Swan. It's so Butterfield's just a boy toy. I, I, exactly right. And 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 I was like, I don't know how else to read this movie. Like yeah. that's what I was being told. That makes a lot of sense. The only thing missing, as far as a Clive Barker typical storyline, is someone getting their dick chopped off. Or chopping their own dick off, because that's usually I bet how you, it goes. I bet you, if they had a little bit more balls, I bet you those uh, cultists would have done it. Or a little bit less balls. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the film, the film's concepts were castrated. Well, it begins with the cult. That's where we start with. Nix has a cult. We don't know why. They're a very loosely affiliated cult at that, because he's powerful. I guess he has direct. Uh, um, he has direct contact with magical forces. I mean, he can demonstrate more than Charles Manson could. And they do make reference to the a Manson-esque cult mm-hmm. and shit. And they are kind of just living in a shack out in the desert. So I don't think it's too big of a stretch to have something like that. And he seems to like to uh, sermonize. He likes to sermonize. He likes to show off his power. What they're going to get out of it isn't entirely clear to me. He seems to... Um, there's a line that he delivers, uh, about what he is, a person who would become a god until he changed his mind. So it means to me that he seems stuck in this in-between state of flesh and divinity, um, either too fearful of what's truly on the other side, what he truly glimpsed in the darkness and in the abyss and the evil, uh, or he couldn't uh, totally abandon his flesh, which mm-hmm. is, it's either either or. It's not entirely sure, but I think that what he really wants is just to have Swan back because that seems to be all he cares about. Mm-hmm. He talks about a lot of other stuff. He talks about bringing death to the world and this, that, and the other thing, and showing everyone what reality really, really is. Yeah, which is basically just meat and goo. That's- but it, but it seems like window dressing for his obsession with Swan. Okay, that makes sense, and hence, so are the cultists. Yeah, because there are really no protection. Swan. Um, it's it sort of like seems to be under the pretense of rescuing this girl. Uh, Nix has this girl chained in a room that is being used for whatever purposes. Who knows? Mm-hmm. It's all kind of uh, vague, except mm-hmm. that the mandrel seems to have a lot of fun attacking her. I don't know what else has gone on with this mandrel. I don't want to like superimpose any of my <laughs> worries of what's gone on with this mandrel, but. Yeah, this mandrel's pretty pretty crazy. Um, so Nix has this pet mandrel that he's like terrorizing the girl with, and that's about all that we see that's really actually happened to her that we see. But she is a chained and emaciated and fearful, terrorized little girl, 
and Swan is coming to basically rescue her and bind Nyx so that he his power is contained and they're going to bury him so deep no one will ever find him. And it comes down to this real showdown where one of the followers of Swan, not a cultist, but a follower of Swan, uh, Jennifer gets her hand cut. And I think it's probably the most grotesque uh, gore effect in this, where she gets her hand cut between the thumb and forefinger right down to the bone. It's very (laughs) gag-inducing for me. But yeah, so they they all wrestle and wrangle, and Nyx ends up getting shot by the girl that's chained up in the corner, Mm -hmm. who is Dorothea. She's 12 years old at this time, but mm-hmm. she's been terrorized beyond belief. She ends up with a gun and shoots him right at the crux of the action and excitement mm-hmm. of Swan coming in to bring him down and rescue her. Mm-hmm. So they do go under the ritual of binding him. Mm-hmm. Fun scene. I do love this scene a lot. It really reminds me of the scene uh, in Black Sunday, uh, except far more grotesque, right? It's... it's um and and I it's it's vaguely like man in the iron mask like that you got all these different things that we could liken it to I love this this um, mask it's very Clive Barker to me very very Clive Barker it, I do remember the ceiling of the mask yeah um, when I was watching it I remember that quite clearly and. I just, there was lots of this that I didn't remember. Yeah. 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 I remember the removal of the mask because the guy has this face that kind of gives him this vague, like, Baron Samadhi uh, type visage. Mm -hmm. But but it's kind of like, you know, when you lay something, you put something heavy on the grass and then you leave it there for two weeks and then you move it. And then that grass is like that weird paler color. And shit, it's kind of like that, like how his face ends up looking. Yeah. Uh, but. They screw this mask onto it. They cover his eyes mm-hmm. and it digs into him and they, they screw it with bolts that are magically sealed with swan's blood, mm. which is, there's a lot of hints about what sort of magic is going on in mm-hmm. this. Um, but it's never really overt, which I really like that they don't give you a great big info mm-hmm. dump about where their magic comes from and what it does and what the point of it and where they learned it and all this crap. Mm-hmm. They just do it, mm-hmm. right? So then they put a mouthpiece on and he's got this big iron mask on mm-hmm. and he's dying and then he's dead and then they bury him in the desert. Mm-hmm. He does definitely have... To, it does appear that his transition, partial as it may be, has given him some kind of immortality. His body is fairly durable and it seems as though killing his body is part of it, but you really need to seal his magic, which is what the function of the mask seems to be. Mm-hmm. I will mention right now that Nyx has got some raging dad bod. He reminds me quite a bit of uh, Michael St. Michael from The Greasy Strangler, and he looks even more like him later on. But he is not like a um, a prophetic leader looking guy you know he's a very jim jones looking gentleman with like he's borderline obese he's old he's straggly haired and yeah he doesn't evoke uh that that sort of um messianic power that you would uh want to have but at the same time it does seem pretty believable as someone who is not remarkable physically and perhaps not unlike a lot of his cult members 
was just some regular schlub down on his luck, probably a perennial loser um, who wanted, it starts with wanting to be someone to be a messenger of something greater, to be something greater. So I could see this idea, you know, like Charles Manson was like five foot nothing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the, like the coal leaders don't necessarily need to, like, I understand, I bet you if they made this movie now, it would be a sexy, it would be a, he'd be like, good looking dude, like undeniably, they might cast someone older, but they would still cast someone who's like good looking. Um, so this is a, this is a really interesting choice. Um, I can't get the Seinfeld out of my head sometimes when I'm like watching it, but at the same time, uh, yeah, like he's got like his, his shirt barely covers his belly. Like, (laughs) and it's a belly. Yeah. It's it's a belly for sure. He's drinking something. That's for sure. For sure. Amongst his followers is Butterfield. Butterfield is so filthy and androgynous when we first meet this individual. He looks like a super young and ultra gay Kevin Bacon, sort of, at the yeah. beginning. Like or, or like an emaciated David Bowie. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Because he does have the two colored eyes. He's got bicolored eyes, and he is wearing these cute little jean shorts. <laughs> I guess, and a little tummy top, and yeah. he's just very, very slight, very thin, very pale, mm-hmm. uh, a very oh. interesting-looking guy. Yeah. Crawls around like Gollum and shit. He does. He remind me a lot of Caliban from Prosper. Caliban, yeah. Very much so, and and serves sort of the same function, uh, and he lets out a, a death howl yeah. upon Nix's death. And upon Nix's death, he is. He seems to be let. He seems to be the most lucid of Nix's followers, why yes. that might be. He doesn't seem to be possessed on any level. I would even wonder if he's being influenced by any magic at all, or if he was someone who just believed wholly in Nix's cause to the point in which he never needed magical influence. He never needed that hysteria. I think the cult members themselves um, want something for themselves from Nyx at the end of the day, where I think Butterfield wants nothing but to see Nyx succeed. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Nick's dead. And flash forward 13 years later, Swan is a world-renowned magician. Yeah. Because that's what you do. It's sort of like Lestat becomes a world-renowned rock star. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's what it reminded me of. Like, yeah. what you can do with all this power? going wow the masses at las vegas yeah that is what he does he is like a david copperfield uh by way of alice cooper type performer and he is in los angeles sunny los angeles where everything seems to be pretty okay for him but he is going to now in the book correct me if i'm wrong he has already quote-unquote died before uh, Scott Bakula's character gets there. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And so, but what, what, so in this film, what, he, Harry's getting paid by his, I guess, manager Loomis or whatever to go and watch some guy who's got like a pompadour and to go get his palm red. Oh, that guy. Yeah. yeah. And he ends up going in to get his palm red and, 
running out of the building right away. So yeah. Damore ends up going into this palm reader who ends up being the person, one of the people who was present when Nyx was buried. Yeah, because uh, Swan doesn't roll up by himself. He rolls up thick. He's got himself a posse. And it seems to be... What I like about the opening sequence of this film a lot is... They're, they make you draw a lot of your own conclusions in such a way that you genuinely feel like you're watching the third act of another movie that you've just walked in on. Yeah, some and, sort of A-team thing, because they got Jennifer and Casper and Pim and Swan rolling up with guns and yeah. ready to take out Nix for what yeah. reason, we don't know. Yeah, and yeah. And, and so it's it, I really like it. And, uh, and, and you try to imagine, like, oh, what's all these characters' history and how do we relate how do they all relate to each other and how did Swan convince them all to come? Cause some of them seem genuinely afraid. And one of them, they all seem to be at the very least ex members or some of them seem to be ex members who have left because some of the cultists say like, Oh, like you came back, thought you were never coming back type stuff. So you could infer a little bit who this palm reader was, but now he's just been butchered by uh, Butterfield. Butterfield and his friend, whose name we couldn't really discern. We had some trouble discerning, but he's quite an interesting character looking because he's got like crazy demon teeth and yeah. he's got like a branding on his forehead. And so he's obviously some sort of otherworldly creature. Mm-hmm. And But he's a super skinhead Nazi, which seems like an interesting choice for a demon. But yeah, he's so he's got like a little he's got a very interesting look about him and doesn't seem like the sort of people that Butterfield would really want to hang around with. Yeah. But, yeah. We don't... Hmm? I was just going to say, Butterfield has changed his look. Butterfield has gone from dirty, cut-off jeans... And scraggly hair. And scraggly hair to, like, tight, tight tank tops and tight, tight gold spandex pants. He seems to favor snake skin and stirrup pants, which is great. It's an interesting look. And Mm -hmm. it works with his... uh, freshly cropped short short hair mm. that is darker and he's just it gives a little bit more of a refined look about him mm-hmm. and like you said someone who was born into the la scene yeah he definitely that's the type of person where you were to see him in los angeles and no one as unique as he looks to people who are not from la he would blend entirely in to the point in which if he started uh, pontificating about this weird religion that he's into, fucking no one would even bat an eye at it. Because no, you true. look at him, obviously he's going to start talking about that shit. I think he was talking about next cosmetics. Yeah. That's what I would think he's talking about. But yeah. either way, him and his minion, who I, I we don't really, we're not exactly 100% on that person's name. Mm-hmm. Um, but they attack the shit out of Harry because Harry comes in, sort of incapacitates the skinhead demon mm-hmm. and makes his way into the room where there is the psychic that has about 10 scalpels and blades stuck into him and he's bleeding mm-hmm. out. He has some words with Butterfield and Butterfield escapes. Yeah. He throws the demon out the window. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't uh, die. No, because when Harry gets involved with the cops, who seems to know intimately, he seems to know all the cops wherever he's hanging out. Yeah. They go to investigate the body and it has disappeared. Mm-hmm. He goes to the police station later on too and deals with the same cop, which is kind of fun. But. 
Yeah, um, Harry himself is got a little bit of notoriety. He's been in a lot of newspapers lately because of a botched exorcism mm-hmm. that he was a part of. Very much John Constantine. He's haunted by this demon that has spoke to him through this possessed child at the time. Mm-hmm. This is this is an interesting detail that's part of the movie, but not really part of the movie. Uh, but I like the visual of this demon and I like this idea of Scott Bakula just like r- being all tormented in his dreams seemingly every night. I mean, every time the dude wakes up, he's always like, takes him like 45 minutes to get out of bed and he's always creaking and croaking and covered in sweat, and covered in sweat, had horrible night terrors. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I, I do dig that aspect of this film, but once he, uh, meets, the the beautiful exotic mysterious Fumika Jensen. Wow. 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 Well, I, well, I don't know. She looks kind of regular to no. me. No. She doesn't look as um, I don't know. I, I like her character a lot, but I, I wouldn't say wow. Wow. She's no J Lo. I mean, I I don't like to compare uh, people, but I just, wow, she's a beautiful woman. (laughs) She's a striking example of womanhood uh, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, I totally forgot that she was in this movie, so. I don't know. Dorothea is interesting. She keeps Harry on because they're going to, they want to investigate why all of Swan's former associates are being killed. Swan feels he's next. He's mm. probably right. Oh, and he is right. Because they go to the show and this, he does a couple illusions, basically parlor tricks. And there's a lot of conversation about how illusions are parlor tricks. And he's not a magician. Don't call him a magician. Uh, he is a, an illusionist. And he has this one illusion, which is not, it's more of a Harry Houdini thing. It's an escape trick. Yeah. And he is strapped down to this, big rotating star. So he's on this like star of David or a St. Andrew's cross sort of Mm. contraption. And there's a camera that is showing the audience what he looks like as well as very Chris Angel. We were talking about how this is all very Chris Angel mind freak type of theatrics going on with this. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is this big spiral with a bunch of swords Mm -hmm. dangling from it. And in time they drop down and they're, as he's spinning under it and they're spinning above him, these swords will pierce like vital organs and his legs and arms and stuff like that. But he is to release himself from these locks with little lock picks or whatever. I guess that's the trick. I don't know. For the magic? I don't yeah. Know. But he uh, doesn't get out in time. No, he does not. And this scene goes on for a minute. It's mm-hmm. It's just him getting slowly pierced by swords as the audience realizes to their horror that this is not part of the show. It's very grand guignol and it does go on for quite some time. And even Harry Demore asking Dorothea, have you seen it go like this before? Is this supposed to happen? And they're both like, no, but they're not really sure because he's an illusionist. So anything could happen, right? Yeah. Anything could happen day at the Swan show. And he (laughs) dies a terrible death in front of his wife and the audience and everybody. And Harry goes like because he's an investigator he's a detective so he's going to go detect things and he goes and checks out the body and looks underneath at the contraption looks at the contraption above looks at the contraption below decides to go in underneath and check things out find some shorted out wires and a butterfield and a demon yeah every time that harry tries to go anywhere to investigate anything 
this fucking guy shows up. So I like this conversation where they're like, who killed Swan? And that's Butterfield talking. And Harry says, you did. And Butterfield says, no, I didn't. Who killed Swan? And Harry's just like, uh, uh, I don't know. I'm going to punch you in the nuts. And he does. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, but it becomes apparent that Butterfield isn't the cause of this death. Mm-hmm. Which only uh, raises more questions. Questions that could be explained away by Swan's manservant. Valentin. Valentin. Who has always been um, Dorothea's shadow in this film so far. Uh, definitely seems to, I mean, I'm sure he answers to both of them, but definitely seems to be there for her beck and call. So maybe it's just the old, oh, I see. This guy covets Swan's wife, wants to get him out of the way, wants to get Harry out of the way because they seem to have this weird connection. And, you know, you've seen, you know, and then you're in traditional detective story type thing, right? It's the same old thing. It's like, it's all over a dame. So someone enjoys that sort of thing and these sorts of triangles and what Harry's doing in this story. I highly suggest Everville, really, because it's a very similar story in that respect. Mm. But anyway, so even though Swan's dead, his widow wants to keep this investigation going and see who killed him. Which stands to reason because she is coy about why she cares so much about Swan. It is her, her husband, but she says that she doesn't love him and does, didn't marry him for love. But she won't really elaborate further on that. But um, something doesn't smell right. No, especially when Valentin keeps being a bit of a roadblock eventually valentin actually tries to pay him off 30 grand stop doing what you're doing stop investigating yeah go he on. actually catches up with him in the psychics place where harry through dreams actually and other mentions and has sleuthed this out that there's other people connected to this what are the names of the other associates that have died have they all died no there's still one alive and he finds this out by going to the psychics house our apartment and Popping open a secret drawer and finding a telephone book. Yeah, old address book. <laughs> Little old address book. That's where Valentin puts his foot down and is like, you need to stop. We don't mm -hmm. need your services. Um, Mrs. Swan doesn't want to talk to you. She doesn't want to see you. Here's some money. Just stop. Just go away. Again, something doesn't smell right. Yeah. And he'll go to now a mental institution where the only other survivor of that Harold Knight, or Day, I suppose it was, all those years ago, is still alive. Yeah, Jennifer has been highly drugged up because, as her caretakers put it, she doesn't understand the difference between reality and fantasy. Mm -hmm. And they say we all have to agree on what is reality. Otherwise, mm -hmm. everything breaks down. And he goes there and basically does what you see in a lot of films when people go to get information from someone in a mental institution. Yeah. Uh, hmm. It all goes quite poorly for Jennifer. Not only does she have like a very tense moment of remembering who Nix is. Mm -hmm. Because when he asked Dorothea who Nix was, she just dropped the phone and didn't answer and kind of froze up. And then pretended she didn't recognize the name. Mm -hmm. Jennifer doesn't pretend. She talks about how 
they killed him and he's digging his way up. Mm-hmm. He's and coming back. She recognized the name of Swan and but becomes so terrified of the idea of Nyx because she sees other people digging some construction workers. She runs out into fucking traffic. Yeah, and gets hit by a car. Yeah. Um this type of convenient loss of a character always kinds of irks me a little bit because I just find it so lazy where I'm just like, eh, and this character is dead, so goodbye, I guess. Um, I understand you're just pushing the narrative forward, but it also just seems like a lot of wasted time. Like, I don't know. I guess you could say, well, how else does Harry get this information? I'm like, I don't know. Any other way? She didn't really need to die. Yeah, like, that's the other thing. She definitely didn't need to die. Yeah. But I suppose, you know, you need to have a death and some violence every couple of minutes in, the, in a film like this, and so they just chop it up to another person to get sacrificed for. I was like, you could have had like Butterfield or really anybody kill her. But I suppose that uh, traffic is a convenient way, I guess. And it seems almost um, like fate. Like the these things are in motion and they can't stop being in motion. And whether someone kills you or whatever, you will die for your participation in Nix's death. Referred to as the Puritan so many times, um, by various characters, but Nyx is how he'll be known for the rest of the film. Now, meanwhile, through all of this, Scott Bakula has made some magician friends. Yeah, as he's digging more and more about Nyx and wants to know more about Swan's former associates and Swan himself and his, like, where he began as a magician. He uh, ends up going to the Magic Castle, which is an actual real place. <laughs> that is baffling to me. Yeah. Not baffling, that's wrong. It's more just remarkable to me that this ridiculous place exists. You go into this fucking place, everyone's wearing full-on costumes. Every asshole with a deck of cards is just fucking, like, doing some prestidigitation for nobody, it seems. And... And, and I'm, and I'm sitting here ignorantly just like, this place can't be real. And yeah. it's, and he came down to West saying something like, can you imagine a goddamn place like this where a bunch of magicians just fucking hang out like a goddamn clubhouse? And <laughs> I was like, well, you know, yeah. you can get a hotel room at the Magic Castle and go and see some shows and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. if you, um, know a magician, you could get, Invited to the club, you oh. can email a magician and maybe ask, and maybe get your way in, like Harry did. Or oh, like it's like the fucking Freemasons, man. You can't. <laughs> it is like the Freemasons, and I do wonder: do they have this like sanctuary room that only three people have the key to? You know how weird and mystical magic people are by default, because their personas, and we see a lot of that like fakeness that some magicians put onto themselves, like nice accent. It's like, hey, fuck you, buddy. Yeah. Um. You know th- this. Uh, piercing the veil of that but um the, the, this this idea of you know the magician's code and the secrets that they keep amongst each other and this idea that there's forbidden knowledge about tricks of of years past right like you know houdini's journals that's all of this shit that they talk about and you wonder how much of this is shtick and how much of this is 
real. Shtick. Like, <laughs> it's and, and, like, yeah, like, because so much of it is, you know, he meets this one magician whom I like quite a bit. Is Billy, this, yeah. Billy's yeah. who you want in a magician. Yeah, just someone who's very practical. Like, yeah, this is kind of like I'm in this place to further my career. These guys are a bunch of jagoffs that like have been drinking their own Kool-Aid a little too long if you fucking know what I mean and j- the him with like the secret the secret doors open and like and, and he just shakes his head and he's like so fucking hokey and I'm like yes yes and <laughs> I don't have a I don't have a strong opinion a positive opinion about magicians in general but I mean I do uh you know respect the craft I suppose you could say but this fuck all that this place is fucking real and maybe they do have a sanctuary in the back it would be quite interesting if they did have a sanctuary like like later on when we see um swan has been interred at home it's a home funeral to a certain extent it's like puppet master or something yeah there's there's a word for that when the body's in state or whatever it used to be a lot more common yeah uh to to have a body uh of the viewing in the family home Mm -hmm, mm-hmm mm-hmm I hope, I only hope that I'll have a house worthy of lying in state, although no one will really come see it except you, maybe my sister, her kids, and Christopher. I think that's about all. And the, well, the dogs won't be alive. Maybe we can have a lay in state for the dogs. Anyway, <laughs> I, I think it's, it's a, it's a lovely tradition and mm. he's not being embalmed. He's not having any visitors at the, at the home. It's just a private chapel. But in there, he has what looks like Houdini's, um, water trap tank mm. and with the chains on the bottom and it's a huge glass cage. It looks like that. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of Houdini nods in this. Mm-hmm. I really, I really enjoy that, but. Well, one of the characters has like this entire monologue about like what uh, Houdini's belief system, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's really is like a mythic figure amongst the magic community. So, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that's the sort of conversation that you would hear at the bar at the actual Magic Castle today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. um, you have there's like one magician that's like holding court and talking about magical philosophies and shit like that. Um. It's a, it's a, it's pretty fascinating. And then so much of this film is predicated on this idea that Swan has been killed. And Scott Bakula is like not fucking buying it. There's too much evidence, particularly, um, Dorothea's speaking of like, I can understand, especially later on, you realize that there's a more mystical reason why he wouldn't want his body tampered with and the idea that the flesh is a prison and magic sets you free. That becomes a hell of a lot more literal uh, in the latter half of the film. But in this instance, it seems practical that if you're going to fake your death, you wouldn't want to be embalmed. You wouldn't want anybody doing an autopsy. You wouldn't want anyone checking your body because you are going to put a dummy in its place. Mm-hmm. Which I like the way that they figure that out. <laughs> Tears his jaw. Is but there it, like a less dramatic way you could possibly do that? You could stick a pin in them like Puppet Master. Like Puppet Master? Yeah. But no, he's just like in front of the man's wife and in front of his, his uh, associate He's just, like, going to rip its bottom jaw off. I'm like, uh, you could do that to an actual body. Well, I guess the jaw would be wired shut, but... Yeah, but, well, no, it wouldn't be, because he's not, uh... He had no autopsy. That's right, so he's just... (laughs) He's just a body. He'd probably be sitting there slack-mouthed unless you glue it, because that's what happens. Like, all the eyeballs fall in, and the mouth, like, 
hangs open and stuff. Yeah. But you uh, don't want a not interred body or, or embalmed body sitting in your fucking house for even like three, four days. Like, well, but yeah, about four days when the gases would start to do the thing. Yeah. You know that thing they do. I know those things yeah. they do for sure. Well, Vinovich, you know, sort of hits a nail on the head when he's holding court in the magic castle and they're talking about how great Swan was or Harry's trying to like push buttons here and Vinovich yells out, if he's so great, why is he so dead? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the light bulb goes off and Harry's like, well, maybe he's not. So let's go tear his corpse up, right? Mm-hmm. I'll manhandle his corpse. And just like a fucking serial killer, Swan can't stay away from the graveyard of his fucking victim. And I like that because at, yeah. at first, you know, you're thinking, who is that guy? And Harry goes and does the gumshoe thing and chases him down to see mm-hmm. who is that guy. Because he's not watching who's at the funeral morning. He's watching on the periphery who's at the funeral that isn't really supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And it's this guy in the fake mustache. Yeah. He, Barney Rubble. Barney Rubble. He is. He chases him to like a nearby alley, and Swan's got this place decked out. That's one of my last notes. Is only in L.A. could you live comfortably in a sewer. Oh yeah, he's got it <laughs> decked out. He's got some like suede or velvet furniture going on. He's got stacks of books like you need. Takeout containers, I suppose you also need. Yeah, like what is he doing? Like, hey, why don't you come to this weird sewer underpass thing and give me a pizza? <laughs> Hey, man, at least he doesn't have a mandrel in the corner with a fucking chained up chick. <laughs> That's true. That's where him and Nick's differ. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, listen, I don't want to be in this burned out Manson house full of sand. Yeah. But him and a Jedi Knight don't differ too badly here. No. And there are a few, like, parallels. There are. Yeah, yeah. Um, he levitates the car where Scott back inside. Now, by the way, Harry has, like, nailed his wife now. Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah, in the very picturesque, uh, very artistic lovemaking scene, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. especially like the the aftermath where they're like lying on each other. I was like, Jesus Christ, this looks like a like an oil painting. <laughs> yeah, no, and very typical of the sensuality that comes along with Clive Barker's work. Mm. Um, yeah, everyone's quite comfortable being like artistically nude in this movie. Or just artistically in tight pants, like Butterfield. Butterfield is in yeah, tight, tight pants. Um, they <laughs> this this idea of uh, of Swan being sort of like drinking wine heavily these days, and just his hair is extra fright wiggy, and he kind of seems vaguely drunk all the time. I like this version of Swan. He just seems so. His faking his death was his way out of this, just not wanting to have anything to do with this. He was afraid of Nick's. The only reason why he went back was because Dorothea got captured. Yeah. Um, which, uh, is why she, you know, eventually marries the guy because he is in love with her. I don't know. Was he in love with her when she was twelve? Maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I try not to think about it. Maybe. Maybe it's a little little thing, but maybe not. Maybe it was the whole having captured her and needing to take care of her. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Or it could be like a Sin City thing where this little girl gets rescued by this old detective, and then when he's a very very old detective, she's like, "Now I want to do you. I've been in love with you forever." It's, it is a very Frank Miller. Right, it, it really, truly is. Um, 
again, going back to like hard-boiled detectives and killers and magic and shit. A little bit of demons and occultism going on in the background. Mm -hmm. Or the foreground, because we're about to get into the underbelly of Nexus cult. Mm -hmm. But before there are some mass homicides, we have a nice little homicide in Dorothea's home. This is where Dorothea gets captured for a second time. Yeah. And she's been having horrible nightmares about mandrills and nicks and i don't know if it's like a vague rape illusion i don't know what's going on there but her visions are very terrible so she's going through the house terrified looking for her housekeeper Mm -hmm. and then finds her sprawled and dead on the floor yeah valentin has had a run-in with butterfield Mm -hmm. and is bleeding and he apologizes to dorothea Mm -hmm. because i guess she's led I guess he's led all of the lambs to slaughter here. He knows where Nyx is buried. Mm -hmm. So Butterfield has wrangled him and Dorothea so he can return everybody like one big happy family to go and dig up Nyx. Mm -hmm. Both to get like a... Valentin to literally dig the hole, which I like. I and like they this. need someone to drive to because Dorothea probably doesn't drive. Probably not. And then also Dorothea has to. Uh, Nix is going to want his revenge. The only reason why Dorothea is even being brought along is because she was the one that shot him in the back yeah. in the first place. Other than that, she's not really part of it. I do like that the the girl is not part of it. Initially taken, so Swan will come. They don't really need like it's not like a weird ritual. It's not like yeah, you know what I mean. Like I, I just I, I would get, I'd be like, oh, okay, here we go. Like we're just gonna have what the the virgin girl sacrifice or or whatever that old trope. And it's not that I'm like sick of it. It's not that I would vilify a movie for having it. I just like that this doesn't. No, and it's that. actually a far more masculine thing. The thought of having to save face for one's honor mm-hmm. and for her to come and pay her dues for having stripped Nix of his honor by mm-hmm. shooting him in the back. It is a very uh, dualistic, a very masculine thing. Mm-hmm. Truly. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, she's not going to be strapped to a, a post naked. And, Particularly yeah. since Butterfield does believe that Swan is dead. Yeah. The, the, the montage of the cultists returning to the, the epicenter of their madness is a wonderful sequence. I love this so much. It, it's, it's so interesting to assume that all of these cultists return to their normal lives. They did. And then someday they got this bat signal somehow mm-hmm. that Nyx was going to be returning or they could feel it in their souls. I don't know how this whole cult works. But I do know how they kill, and that is without remorse, in cold blood, and immediately. Yeah, you, you are not seeing these cultists kill uh, strangers on the street. You are seeing them packing their bags, washing their hands. They have killed their immediate family, whomever was near them. Whoever might stop them. Yeah. So, husbands. Children, wives, friends, co-workers, whoever's there. So, of course, Butterfield has put Valentin to work. Yeah. I mean, how could you work in those skin-tight snakeskin spandex, stirrup yeah. pants? Plus, this idea of Butterfield being this dirty, uh, golem-type character 
is over. He is he is like a dude that showers. He's a dude that wears clean clothes. He's a dude that wears a velvet shirt with a corset underneath it. Yeah, he's he's getting a little more refined of a look here. Oh man, I tell you this much: if someone was spouting religious gospel to me, and one looked like Nick's and the other one looked like Butterfield. I would probably w- rather hang out with Butterfield. Yeah. <laughs> he, I like that's a dude that I feel like if I'm sitting next to, it's upping my cool cred. Like I'm I'm it's it's good for me. You sit next to next and he's talking about religious stuff, people are like not going to want to go near you. People want to go near someone that looks like Butterfield, in my opinion. Butterfield reminded me quite a bit of that. Uh, what's that horrible Dan Brown book that became a movie with Tom Hanks? It was equally horrible. A Nick Cage. It was uh, The Da Vinci Code, right? Yeah. There's that one monk that whips himself with the kind of yeah. nine tails. Um, a very interesting looking fella. That's who this reminds me of quite a lot. So there's they're digging and digging and digging. They are. And... Oh, they find him. Like any good digging up a body scene, it seems to take forever. And it seems <laughs> like it's not going to be the right spot. And we think we're going to see Butterfield have to pistol whip Valentin or something. Mm. Because this is where Swan said it was. And then it becomes like apparent to me, like, Valentin doesn't actually know where he's buried. He wasn't part of this group. No, he's just approximating where it was. It was like when my dad got me to go fucking dig the septic tank uh, next to our cottage to, to uncover it. And he told us where it was on a map and he was fucking wrong. It was five feet from where he said it was. And so we dug a fucking grave looking for this thing. And my dad shows up ready to yell at us. And then he was like, oh, and he like puts his shovel into the ground and instantaneously ding. Oh, there's the septic tank. It's right there. He couldn't understand why he didn't find we couldn't find it. Thought we were idiots. That's funny. It was not funny. I hate that fucking weekend. Anyway, but it is that because the side. There's an arm. There's a floppy arm. Nix's body doesn't look like you might suspect for one that has been buried in the earth for 13 years. No, and then I'm starting to think like, oh, Navajo Desert, salt content, dry, maybe mummified. I don't know. But, you know, we don't even get treated to the whole exhumation and archaeological happenstance here Mm -hmm. what we get is next busting his own way out yeah and you know he he's all blackened and gushy looking but he does have like a modesty rag on so he's wrapped a not unlike someone else's lord and savior jesus christ otherwise known as jebus jebus he does have a a very uh he does still have his mask on when it's removed he seems to become more um, animated. He's, his flesh gets a healthy gray tone to it. And he is now resurrected. These cult members, by the way, are losing their minds. They're cutting their hair. They're to the, to, to the scalp, bleeding themselves, breaking glass. Uh, they, are, they are so damn excited. They are so damn excited. And I like that. <laughs> By this time, Swan and Harry have shown up. And you can hear this cacophony and wailing. It sounds like an orgastic mess going on in this fucking shack out in the middle of the desert. And Harry and Swan are coming up to the building. And Harry's like, what the hell is going on? And Swan's like, well, I guess it sounds like he's been resurrected. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I suppose that's what it would sound like on a frenzied cult is reveling and rejoicing in the resurrection of their long dead leader. Mm-hmm. It seems as though Nix has changed. And I believe him when he says that he was conscious that entire time while he was underneath the ground because he is different in a lot of ways. He's less manic. Mm -hmm. He's far more measured. And he also seems to have modulated his idea about what his role in his own religion should be and who is worthy of following that religion because whereas he seemed happy to sermonize these people previously now he is disgusted with their presence yeah where you know that fame and that adulation and the idolatry of himself amongst Mm -hmm. his followers has totally worn thin not because they couldn't do anything to save him down there. He just had a lot of time to think about it. Now he's going to go on a solo tour and all he needs is a sound guy. <laughs> and there's an interesting duality between um, what Swan had become, an entertaining, an entertainer, a rich celebrity, a different type of figure that people worship feverently, um, you know, idolatry all around with his... Uh, he looks like Christ up into the air. Uh, it's all very religious symbology around uh, Swan as the entertainer. And then you have his old uh, person who you could say uh, opened his mind to this and gave him magic, gave him the ability to perform, quote unquote, his miracles, which is what he became famous off of, who has now shed the use for followers it doesn't seem to interest him anymore so he could almost vision that nix 10 years ago was just a down and dirty but no less not frivolous but um but anyway the point being is that um nix seems to have shed himself the the use of all the these extras um that don't really amount to much because his message and his connection to one person, which he feels to Swan. Because for some reason, Swan rejecting him, killing him, and doing his own thing, gaining his own followers, is more important than being a follower who is like sheep waiting for him to return. Uh, and which he will punish his followers in who very quickly, as I guess as they're dying, realize that maybe they backed the wrong horse. Yeah, I like the one at least screams, fuck you. Oh, yeah. And this is all riding on the fact that Swan is going to come and rescue Dorothea. Butterfield has maintained that Swan is dead because as far as he knows, he was. Uh, Nick seems to know better. Um, same bat signal that alerted all the followers that Nick was alive again. I guess alerts Nix that Swan is not dead. So he has Dorothea while he's killing all his followers in a very cinematic way at that. Mm. The ground itself is coming up and swallowing them. 
he has suspended himself. And there's a lot of this like floating dude, very walk on water, Jesus bullcrap that yeah. these magicians do that make people ooh and ah. Um, so he's got his followers ooing and aahing while he is holding Dorothea over this giant tunnel that seems to go straight to hell that is opened up in the ground underneath mm-hmm. his feet. And that's where he spends most of the rest of the movie is just kind of hovering. Yeah, he really, really does. But I suppose if you could demonstrate your magic um, and kill a bunch of people in one room, that's fine. I can tell you that uh, demonstration of magic, Swan is going to demonstrate his fire-breathing abilities to damage the beautiful face of Butterfield. Mm, quel dommage. Yeah. Désolé. <laughs> It's actually a, a pretty cool scene. I remembered this scene completely differently. Uh, this was the scene in which my brother's friend was like, oh, my, thank God he's like using his powers because he couldn't imagine. I imagined that uh, Swan was being held down by cultists when he did this. But no, he just decides to. It's just so weird. If you can shoot a fireball, why did you shoot it on the table first? And it goes from the table to Butterfield's face. Fine, whatever. Maybe it, it has a travel across the surface. Maybe. It, whatever reason it has to be. It's, I mean, you don't really... It's a fucking movie. Who cares? And I don't know how magic fire works. <laughs> yeah. So. And this is what we'll I, have to go to the magic castle. We can ask them. Yeah, I know. You distract them with your digitation, and I will just beat them up? I don't have any skills. I need skills. Yeah, you do. Maybe um, maybe you just need to kill the one that created you, and then you'll absorb. It's sort of like a Jedi thing, and then you can breathe fire. Maybe. I've never been anything just but like big and strong. So like I don't That's maybe, your power. That's enough that's maybe. Skill. That's enough maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe. When Butterfield gets half his face burned, he's got like a two-face vibe going on. He when he gets electrocuted and his face is erupting with blood and and he, he his his face is charred. I still, there's a part of me that, that thinks, oh, he's not dead. He's not dead. There's no way. I know, because all through this movie, there's only once where Valentin's everywhere you want to be, but all through this movie, Butterfield just fucking pops up everywhere. Oh, my God. Everywhere. Everywhere Harry goes, there's fucking Butterfield. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, it's I love it. It's very much in the the sense of uh, a video game mini boss, like a dude that's just at the end of every level. It's, I wouldn't mind another film just on Butterfield. Call it Butterfield, whatever. You could do that. Yeah, I'd watch that. Totally. He just keeps coming back. And and you, and even if you wanted to like not have him come back from the dead, there's a decade of missing time. Like what was he doing? Yeah, being awesome. Taking a shower and buying some cool pants. Hanging out with his Nazi friend. Yeah, his weird Nazi with his shaved teeth or whatever. It's fucking cool. <laughs> it's a good look. It's a like if you want like a a, a demonic looking bastard. That dude had it going on. It is. It is a very good, good look. Um, I'm fucking, yeah. It's pretty, pretty cool. But fuck all that because the the, the Nyx is going to continue, uh, really focusing on Swan, and this is where this relation. Like I am kind of joking when I'm talking about them being like super into each other, but um, no, he has a, a very interesting speech about how he needs to ignore the girl she is just flesh and when swan makes more moves to protect dorothea nix has a total flip out basically brain rapes swan into a bleeding fucking ayahuasca tripping mess Mm -hmm. and screams at him will you never learn Mm -hmm. yeah and uh, and 
it's so intense. It's not, he doesn't hate Dorothea. He hates what she represents, which is pulling Swan away from him. And more of an attachment to the flesh. Yeah. So, so when I'm watching this film, like it is the message that I really am getting that this is about two men, one with whom is furious that has strayed from the other. Mm-hmm. Um, to more, to a more traditional understanding of connection, which is the flesh of a woman. When he does this to Swan, you would assume that Swan's dead, but he's still got some oomph left in him because Harry's on the case. He's, He's been trying to fight with Nyx a little bit. Uh, not that much, though. And he's also... Uh, Nyx has opened this third eye. Or the anus of the mind. It is the anus of the mind. It keeps pulsating, and I keep, it keeps making me want to rub my own head because it's just very gushy. And- it keeps making me expect something to come out of it, like a little, like a little poop or a little finger or a little alien, an antenna, perhaps. A little antenna, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like perhaps he would do something like that. It seems very Clive Barker, mm-hmm. or um, from Beyond or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's what it reminds me a lot of. So you have this. Um, confrontation where i guess like swan does this combo attack on with uh with uh harry because he's like levitate me up and i'm like is this necessary do you need to be floating to do this and then i was like well maybe it's the leverage that he needs because meanwhile nix is fucking uh, transforming to his final form which seems to be this gelatinous stringy something beyond human understanding perhaps Mm -hmm. i would dare to say lovecraftian but there's still a lot of shape there that you could discern um (laughs) it's the it's the weird tendrils and the and the the substance that is indescribable as for what matter it is made of and what colors are actually making this up which are hard to define and the the places that these are almost like tentacle type things or the the vestiges of tentacles are beginning Mm -hmm. to erupt from his body Mm -hmm. it's yeah it's otherworldly anyhow it is a Mm -hmm. nice bit of body horror within the end of this film yeah it kind of strikes me as as uh uh amber or or perhaps even like something sap like or like those black snakes those carbon snakes that you would light on fire yeah something like firework season whenever that is yeah but uh I guess Harry needs to be levitated so that he doesn't fall down this pit. Yeah, and this is really much like, I am going to pitch your ass into this hole like your fucking Emperor Palpatine. Because he's, he's wearing like, he, he's like Pale Patine. He's, pale Patine. He's yeah. Pale Patine. He's got like white robes. Um, he's got that, like I said, like this this pattern on his face that just reminds me of Baron Samadhi. Like, like that's all I could think of every time I saw him. And, and, and then they pitch him down a fucking shaft, which is an earth shaft, not a, not a Death Star shaft. And they have this moment where, uh, Swan does eventually die. He's, I, I was like, maybe if you didn't ask him to levitate you, he would still have the strength to, to, to get out of here. But no, I guess he's got to end up with the girl. 
So, well, he's also like Swan's got multiple contusions on the inside of his yeah, brain. Yeah, and he did like his brain looked like I almost thought from that scene that it was just, his head was just going to explode, right? Because mm-hmm. it seems like he's crushing his brain. Like reverse scanners. Exactly. Yeah. Um, when when Nix gets pitched down here, beforehand he does refer to himself as a god who changed his mind. And I do think that there's almost an ironic sense that there's the tangible thing that Nix can't escape from, no matter what he says, no matter what he thinks he's trying to bring to the earth. It is just Swan. That is whom he is connected to on earth and why that or this, this hell, this darkness, this thing that he is connected to is so horrific that he he doesn't want any real part of it. And when he gets chucked down there, he enters into this lava, and then Harry has this moment of, like, glimpsing the abyss, looking down into it. and Which uh, may drive a lesser man insane. Mm, but Harry has touched darkness, and darkness has reached out toward him on true. numerous occasions. True. And Nixus even has, like, this, this melding finger technique, which seems to be able to open up your perception to some sort of otherworldly darkness. The ayahuasca trip technique. Mm. Um, it seems to be like a very, um, yeah, Jimson weed, edge of hell sort of trip. Very mm. uh, Carlos Castaneda kind of thing going on that Nix can induce by, yeah, letting his fingers melt into your temple. When you have Nix burning alive to a skeleton, you have swan's body being levitated and also stripped of flesh and then he crumples down to the ground uh a skeleton to um, live in this desert forevermore i suppose it seems to be because they not only they they this film clips back a lot to other scenes in the film which is not usually my favorite technique, but I do like the dialogue in these scenes, so I'll give it a pass. I don't think you need the scenes to remind people. You could have just put the dialogue into new scenes that you're filming as opposed to just like, remember this that happened two minutes ago? Yeah, I do, actually. I remember how it was alluded to that flesh is a trap and that magic... Will set you free? Yes. Yeah, so the, 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 the story seems to end on this note of swan is not dead freed uh to this upper plane of existence whether or not that existence exists with nix who also has been stripped of flesh and set free via magic we don't know i wouldn't say necessarily just because of the the visual ideas here of heaven and hell and trapped and free is nix was forcibly stripped of his flesh Mm -hmm. and trapped under earth which closed up over top of him yet Mm. again so he's buried all over again and he was pretty powerless for 13 years Mm -hmm. under the ground um on the other hand it seemed that this was like a a crucifixion type pose that swan took on Mm -hmm. and was stripped of his flesh quite naturally it seemed for as natural as that can be and was uh, able to remain as earthly remains on top of the earth as part of the earth. Mm. So that to me just seems a little more freed than what happened to poor, poor Nix. I agree. I agree. Now that you say it that way. Yeah. Mm. 
just the the visual, the Judeo Christian visuals of above and below heaven and hell and all that stuff. True, and they had Nixon that cruciform at the very beginning of the movie where he's on that hanging bone obelisk thing. And his little Nix rack. Yeah, because that wasn't even a torture thing. That was him hanging out all by himself on yeah. his little bone if, thing. It, this was the seriously the detective story equivalent of some guy sitting in a high back chair and spinning it around on his desk. Except this time he's hanging. He's like, there was no call for it. The evil magician moment right there. Yeah, yeah. What do we got next for him? Coming up next, we have. Let Us Pray, which is a little-known horror film that I find has a lot of the same sort of feel as this, although it's a little more overt with the Judeo-Christian symbology. I really do enjoy the soundtrack as well, so I do urge people to seek out the soundtrack to the film Let Us Pray. And uh, yeah, that um, sort of ends, it's a little bookend into some of more, our more summary picks because it's still freezing goddamn cold outside. Mm. So we're getting away from the chilly old Clive Barker, the cold heart canyon that is Clive Barker into something more summery and a little more hot. So we're going to head into some Irish horror and then slowly edge into a Stephen, slowly edge into a Stephen King of Palooza. Yeah. It's about that time of year again. Getting there. Getting there. So yeah, that's what we have next. And after that, we're going to do some slippery, slidey, buggy stuff. So that'll be fun. Agreed. Slippery, slimy old West. They call me. That is what they call you. And I'm typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.